0: grateful to be able to be here this morning father to be able to gather with your people to be able to sit under your word lord we pray that uh, you would be with us and that you would teach us and instruct us pray lord that you would deepen our love for you and for your word lord that you would deepen our trust in you Uh, in all things, and Father, as we discuss suffering and contentment uh, at this time, we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are satisfied in you, that are trusting in your purposes and plans, and uh, that are fully at rest in Christ and filled with the peace of the Spirit. And Lord, uh, we pray uh, that you would just guide us during this time and encourage us, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. So um, today we will be finishing up um, this section uh, of the class, dealing with suffering for the glory of God. And the remainder of the year, the last five weeks, will be on guidance, uh, finding and knowing the will of God. So today's class is titled The Secret of Contentment, and we'll be discussing how to find satisfaction and joy in Christ in every situation, including in suffering. Now, over the last few months, we've looked at what the Bible says about suffering and of our experience with suffering. We looked at God's purposes in our suffering, we've talked about how Enduring suffering biblically really is a fight for faith. And we've discussed different ways that we can fight for faith. We've talked about suffering for the gospel and how faithful suffering as a Christian is a witness to those around us of the hope that we have in the gospel in Christ. Um, So I trust that what we've learned will help us all to be grounded in the faith to be trusting in God as we go through suffering in this world. But even so, that doesn't change the fact that suffering is still suffering. It is difficult. And it is something that we must endure. We must go through it because suffering will be part of life in this fallen world until the end of this evil age. Philippians 3.20 says... Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We await our Savior Jesus Christ to return and to make all things new. But while we wait for him ultimately to restore all things, we find ourselves regularly waiting for God. As a rule, we find ourselves waiting for God. We wait for answers to prayer, for deliverance from trouble. We wait for wisdom and guidance, for fulfillment of his promises. The scriptures make clear that waiting is the normal posture of the believer this side of heaven. From the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3, God's people began looking and waiting for the one who would come and crush the enemy. Abraham sojourned in a land promised to him and to his descendants, but he never took possession of it. And we're told that he even then, was looking and waiting for a better country. Abraham was promised offspring, but he had to wait 25 years before Isaac was born. Israel waited 400 years for the promised deliverance from Egypt. And after the exodus, Israel was made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they could enter the promised land. The Psalms are filled with encouragements and admonishments to wait for God. Psalm 25.3 says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Psalm 27.14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Psalm 62, 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. And in Psalm 130, we see the psalmist in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, says, I cry out, or out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so we see this constant theme of waiting. In Romans 8.23 we read, And in our hearts we know, as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that we groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Life in this fallen world is one of inwardly groaning and eagerly waiting. Paul indicates just a few verses earlier that creation itself is groaning and waiting to be set free from its bondage to decay. <clears throat> the Bible ends with the promise And with the hopeful prayer of those who are waiting for the return of the Lord. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This side of heaven, we live a life of waiting, of hoping, and of trusting. But waiting brings with it considerable challenges and temptations. Namely, that we would fail to hope and that we would fail To trust, that is, that our hope would waver and our faith would weaken. Proverbs 13 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if we don't guard our hearts, they can become quite sick in our times of waiting. Waiting brings the temptation to become discontent, we get tired of waiting. And before long, we find ourselves not trusting, but anxious and fretting. We find ourselves not hoping, but distracted and discouraged. And we find ourselves not content, but grumbling and complaining. This is something that on some level, we've all struggled with. It might be that we face discontentment in our job, in our singleness, in our marriage, our church, our friends, our budget and finances, the gifts and talents we've been given, the spiritual gifts or ministry opportunities that we have. There is no lack of things to be discontent about if we lose our proper focus. All of us will endure suffering in this life. So as we seek to suffer faithfully, to suffer in a way that honors God, we need not only to learn how to fight for faith, but how to wait well. To wait faithfully. Not wait with a disgruntled, complaining, or distracted heart, but to wait with contentment and to wait with hope. So with that in mind, we're going to be looking at contentment, what it is, and how to find it. So what is contentment? Look with me in Philippians chapter 4, if you will. Read uh, verses 10 to 12. abundance, and need. <clears throat> Paul explains to the Philippians that he was thankful for their generous gift, but he didn't want to be misunderstood. He he was grateful for their generosity, but he didn't want to convey that he was in need or that he was asking for more help. So he was clear. He wasn't speaking of being in need. He had learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether he had much or little <clears throat> so um, how do we understand contentment here um, contentment here in verse 10 can be defined as having a sense of sufficiency independent of circumstances or conditions or surroundings it's an expression of being satisfied and with that in mind, it's also helpful to note what contentment is not. First, it's not anti ambition. Okay? Um, ambition itself is not wrong. In fact, we should have godly ambitions. Paul had ambition. He says in Romans fifteen twenty that it was his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ had not yet been named. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says it was his ambition to please God in all things. And he says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, that if a man aspires to the office of an overseer, if it is his ambition, that he desires a noble task. But Paul does uh, condemn selfish ambition. Yeah, Norm. Romans 15, 20. 20 thank you. So ambition itself uh, is a good thing, but Paul does condemn selfish ambition. In Philippians 2, 3, <clears throat> he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than. Than yourselves. So contentment does not mean lacking ambition, but it does rule out selfish ambition. Uh, secondly, <clears throat> contentment is not an indifference to circumstances, it's not apathetic or emotionally indifferent. Instead, Paul's talking about not being mastered by, not being controlled by by circumstances. Circumstances would not determine his emotional or his volitional response, but he didn't mean that we should simply be resigned to our circumstances either. Paul was clear that if someone was able to improve their circumstances by just and legitimate means, they should do so. Paul himself did this when he was in Philippi. If you will turn to Acts 16. We'll be reading in verse 37. This was after Paul and Silas were unjustly beaten and imprisoned in that city of Philippi. And then the magistrates simply wanted to release them and uh, let them go in the morning. But in verse 37, it says, But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So rather than being indifferent to being mistreated, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship to highlight the injustice that was done to him and to get the acknowledgement that was due and the apology that he was owed. But the thing to recognize is that before they were released from prison, while they were suffering unjustly in in very difficult circumstances, what were Paul and Silas doing? Were they discontent? Were they complaining? No, in verse 25 it says, about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God And the prisoners were listening to them. Their hope was not diminished. Their faith was not shaken. Their joy was not held hostage by their circumstances. And the prisoners and the jailers who heard them were astonished. And some among them were even converted. In another example, Paul says... In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 and 21, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now, in the context, Paul's arguing that the position are we in when God called and converted us is not what is ultimately important, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, married or single. None of those conditions need to change in order for one to be a Christian or to be a faithful Christian or a fruitful Christian. But Paul also acknowledges that some conditions are preferable to others. And with regard to slavery, he says, if you have a legitimate opportunity to gain your freedom, you should do it. The point is that contentment is not a resigned indifference to circumstances, but seeing them with the perspective of what ultimately matters. Not having your hope and joy dependent upon temporal matters and being free to make changes when there are legitimate means to do so. It's not wrong, for instance, to leave a job that you don't like for another one or to desire to get married. It's not wrong any more than it is to turn on the AC if you're warm. I mean, you can change your circumstances legitimately um, without being a failure of contentment. The question is, do I have to have this in order to be happy? Yeah, Will. I was wondering about the incident that's... Paul and Silas singing and praying, um, could that be interpreted not so much as like they're just happy and singing songs, but that these are actual like cries and pleas out to God to to change their circumstances, you know, like even as an example of how we should respond and sort of like maybe not in, like they're not discontented, but they do want their circumstances to change and still they're reacting in a godly manner. Yeah, uh, no, it's a really good point. Um, We're not told which particular psalms or hymns they were singing. um, And, yeah, we could speculate on that. We could imagine, um, you know, uh, any number of scenarios, I suppose. But, yeah, they could be imprecatory. Or um, they could be, um, you know... um, you know, I'm thinking about when Peter and John were uh, beaten in the early chapters of Acts and how they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering. So, I mean, they could indeed have been songs of rejoicing, songs of praise. Um, but we're not, we're not told in this case. Mixed in with that, it could as, as well be uh, lament a bad press it's not necessarily so it's like voicing um you voice the pain to god you entrust them so there could have very well been uh some lamentation mixed in it's a not necessarily one perspective but multiple yeah yeah no that's that that's good um yeah i think we're when we are enduring suffering, um, and unjust suffering. It's not like we just have one, you know, one form of emotion or one form of response. Um, particularly if we are informed by Scripture and filled with the Spirit, we'll, we may be sorrowful and yet rejoicing, right? So, that's good. <clears throat> so then, um, let's talk then about contentment, how to find it. It's one thing to understand what contentment is. It's another thing to experience true contentment. So how do we find it? Look back again, if you will, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. If you'll notice there in verse 11, Paul says, I have learned to be content. And in verse 12, says that he learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This surprises you that uh, Paul had to learn this. It shouldn't. Uh, Paul was a man just like us, with like passions. He had to be born again and renewed by the Spirit. He had to put to death fleshly desires and subdue worldly thinking. And like all of us, Paul had to learn contentment. This wasn't always his mindset any more than it is for any one of us. It's something that he had to learn and something that we too must learn. So how did he learn it? Let's talk about four ways that Paul learned to be content. That by God's grace, we too may learn to be content regardless of our circumstances. Not fearing what the future may hold, or in fact, what may be withheld from us. So, first, Paul learned to be content by experience. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, Then I am strong. Now we don't know exactly what Paul's thorn in the flesh was here. But whatever it was, Paul wanted to be freed from it. He struggled against it. Three times he asked that God would take it away. But it wasn't removed. At first, Paul was not content with with these circumstances. That this thorn... that in his weakness made him rely on the all-sufficient grace of God. He was not content with that. But through this difficult and ongoing experience, Paul learned to be content in his weaknesses and in insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. God taught him, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul learned to be content. And Paul is not alone in this. Uh, Sometimes God, in his kindness, brings hard trials into our lives, sometimes lasting, painful trials, through which he is teaching us contentment so that we'll learn to trust in him. You can probably recognize times in your own life, hard times in your life, when you've learned the most about God, when you've Been drawn closest to him and learned contentment in him through some loss or some disappointment or some other form of trial. Though it was painful to go through these times, we can look back, we can thank God for the experience because of how we've grown through it. Even while we're in the midst of it as Paul was, we can... By God's grace, thank him as we learn that his grace is sufficient for us, as his strength is perfected in our weaknesses. So second, learn to be content by doing the work in front of you. Sometimes, for feeling discontent, the temptation is to focus inward, to fixate on what we're discontent about, and to dwell on the possibility of change such that we become convinced that we have the blueprint for our own happiness. If only I had this, if these circumstances were different, then I'd be okay. The focus becomes more on our discomfort and our desires, and less on God, and still less on others. And in this way, God becomes very small in our eyes, and our problems seem insurmountable, and we become convinced that we cannot be content without our circumstances or surroundings changing. In times like this, rather than focusing on what I think I must have to be happy, we should ask, what does God require Of me in the circumstances that he has brought me into. And then we should get busy doing it. Whether in a situation at work. Or in a relationship. Or in responsibilities we have a church. In Philippians 2 Paul calls the church. To a Christ-like mind of love and humility. That puts obedience to God in the interest of others before their own. And he calls them to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And he encourages them in their weakness, reminding them that, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we move from dwelling on ourselves to doing the work in front of us and loving those around us, We'll find that God is working in us, giving us the desire as well as the strength and will to persevere in what we've been called to do. Third, we can learn to be content by listening to truth rather than our emotions. God has created us with the capacity for broad and deep emotional experience, and we should seek to understand our emotions, not that we would follow them, but that we would harness them in the service of truth. We can talk about a professed theology versus an actual or a functional theology that is what we say we believe versus what how we live says about what we believe and one reason these can be so different is because we listen to our emotions more than we do to the truth we follow our emotions more than what god has revealed in his word in trials emotions can often speak louder than truth and um we, I think we can all see how they can lead us astray. Um, emotions are not bad. They're just not always reliable. In a time of suffering, I may feel like God is unconcerned. But the truth is, he is concerned for me as my loving father. And nothing happens to me apart from God. Even the hairs of my head are numbered. Circumstances may change but God is unchanging. I may feel like God is not with me in my situation in my life. Uh, and that my life is out of control. Or if he is there, he is cruel and uncaring to let these circumstances happen. But the truth is, for the child of God, every situation in life <clears throat> is in some way the unfolding of God's wise And good purposes for us. And it's a manifestation of his love. I may not understand all his ways, but he is working all things together for the good of his people. I may feel like a particular trial will never end, but the truth is that whatever my circumstances may be right now, they are only temporary. They are light. And momentary. And not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, emotions are a wonderful gift of God. They are part of how God made us. But we must let the truth of God's word inform and direct our emotions. <clears throat> and fourth, we learn to be content by being truly satisfied in christ and for this last point let's go back to philippians 4 one more time again in verse 12 paul writes i have learned the secret Of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. So what was the secret? In verse 13, he explains, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The secret was Christ. When Paul wrestled with the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, the solution was not removing the thorn, It wasn't getting rid of his weaknesses. But the solution was experiencing the grace of God in his hardship. Experiencing the power of Christ in his weakness. We ask, how does this happen though? If we turn back uh, one chapter, Philippians 3, we see something very helpful here in verse 8. <clears throat> paul says indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing jesus of christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ notice what he says here that in comparison with the surpassing value of christ he counts all things Rubbish! All that he had previously considered of great value, all he had treasured and tr- trusted in, he now considers loss as garbage. In verses 9 and 10, we see that all that ultimately mattered to Paul was knowing Christ, being found in Christ, having his, his righteousness. By faith. And in comparison to the value of knowing Christ, all else was loss. Far from being discontent because of suffering, Paul had fellowship with Christ in his suffering. He wanted to share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and participating in his resurrection from the dead. The secret to being content in any and all circumstances is to find your true satisfaction in Christ. The things of this life come and go. They're temporal, contingent, and if we value them improperly, they are inevitably disappointing and bitter. Even good things that are blessings from God aren't reliable places to rest our hope. As we enjoy them, we should enjoy them for his sake, giving thanks to God. And if they're taken away and we yet have him, we can be content with the one who is the source of all good. Augustine said, the good which you love is from him, but it is only as it is related to him That it is good and sweet. Otherwise it will justly become bitter. For all that comes from him is unjustly loved if he is abandoned. You hear what he's saying here. That even though God gives us many good things to enjoy. That we should enjoy them for his sake. If there's good in them it's only good as it relates to him. And as we enjoy them, we enjoy him in it. But if we turn from him and hold to those things and put our trust and love and hope in those things, they will ultimately become bitter and disappointing and leave us discontent. But if we have him, whether we have much or little, we have all we need. And Christ is a sure foundation. And when our hope, our joy, and our satisfaction is in Him, nothing can take it away, even if our world is crashing down around us. So when our hope and contentment are grounded in knowing Him, we can face suffering and trial and confidently wait because we know him who is trustworthy <clears throat> earlier i mentioned uh, proverbs 13:12 which says hope deferred makes the heart sick the second half of that proverb says but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life Yes, if you hope if your hope is in something which may not be realized or may be indefinitely delayed or may be taken discouragement and discontent will be your lot. But if your desire is to know Christ and be found in him you will feed upon the tree of life. If you hunger and thirst for him and his righteousness, you will be satisfied. If you hope in him, your hope will not be deferred, even as we await his return, because he is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Listen to how Jesus describes himself in John 7 Uh, verse 37 and 38. Here we're told that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is... More than just knowing the doctrine or being able to cite the text. This is a tasting and experiencing that God is good. And having your spiritual thirst quenched by his life-giving spirit. He really is the living water that truly satisfies. So when we're faced with temptation to be discontent and we will all have to wrestle with this. We read and meditate on God's word which reveals to us who Jesus is. We pray for God to open our eyes to see him, to open our ears to hear him. And in our discontentment, we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 90, satisfy us. In the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And then we wait, knowing that none who wait on God shall be put to shame. So, in conclusion then, suffering is real and it is a painful experience. And we will face many forms of it in our lives. Yet God is sovereign, even over our suffering. Nothing in God's economy goes to waste. Nothing is redundant or unnecessary, including our suffering. There are many questions we have that will go unanswered. But we can trust God. And we can wait on Him. And we can be content because of what we learn at the foot of the cross, what we learn about his unchanging character from the gospel, that he is good, he is trustworthy, he is in control, he is wise, and he is for us. One day he will wipe away every tear. One day there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We will see the old order of things pass away and we will rejoice as God makes all things new. So with that hope in mind, we can then face suffering, knowing that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory That will be revealed to us. Well, We have um, a few minutes left. If there are any questions. Very good. Well let's go ahead and pray. Our father how grateful we are. That you are our father. That you are our God. That you have made us your own. And you have redeemed us through your Son. And that you have regenerated us by your Spirit. You've adopted us into your family. And that you are working all things for our good. Even as you lead us through our painful pilgrimage here. To our eternal home. Pray that you would keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Who is seated at your right hand. Who is. Ruling and reigning. Putting all his enemies under his feet. And we pray Lord that. In seeing him. As he is. And loving him. That by your spirit you will transform us ever more into his likeness. Lord, we thank you for the great hope that is ours and the comfort that is ours, knowing that you are always with us, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, but you will accomplish all your purposes and establish the work of your hands in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.